0: So I'm really happy to be here with all of you. And as I was getting ready to come, I thought it wasn't a really hard decision to decide what text I wanted to talk about because about a month ago, I finished, as I said, my process with my dissertation writing. And the last step in writing this 300-page paper that I had to write was that I had to publicly in front of a group of people who asked me questions about it this is the dissertation defense and I sat down that day and I had dissertation open and I also had a Bible open in front of me and the Bible passage that I had opened the Bible to when my friends asked me later it was this passage Ephesians 4 And I joked with them that even after six years of not being a pastor, it still would have felt a lot easier for me to just pick up the Bible when it was time to introduce my dissertation and read that text and preach than it was to sit there and have people ask me questions about what I had written. So I'm really sorry to say, even though you maybe would rather hear stories about our time on the boat, but today you get a sermon that is basically a version of my dissertation But just be glad that I am not going to read the whole dissertation to you. (laughs) So um, let's begin, since it is a sermon, with a moment of prayer. And then we're going to look at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, if you want to follow along. Let's pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find wisdom. And in your will, discover peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's hear the word of God from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service we will grow in to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I've said, it's so good to be back here and see so many familiar faces in this beloved place. and. I really can't believe that it's been six years, almost exactly six years, since I stood up here and said goodbye to all of you. And I can look around and I can see so much that is the same about this beloved place. I see many beloved faces. I see people sitting even in the same pews that you used to sit in. (laughs) I see that some of the things I love about North Holland, you continue to do. You cultivate young people to lead among you. You welcome students into the praise band, although you could hardly recognize them after six years being away. You still invite seminary students to lead among you. You care for one another in your community. I saw the Hope Quilts out there in the other room. You've given Stephen a sabbatical to take the time that he needs to be re-energized for ministry. You care for one another in so many ways. and yet. So much has also changed, hasn't it, in six years? You have this new beautiful space that wasn't here before. Pastor Audrey and other interns have come and gone in your lives in the times that I, since I've been here. People have gotten married. Kids have grown up. Some of our friends are not with us anymore. So much has changed for all of us. And we've all experienced in various ways our world changing around us as well, haven't we? the kinds of events that marked our lives as before and after, the kinds of things that have divided families, neighbors, churches, across lines of political controversy have happened among us. So throughout these past few years, while I have been away and all of these changes have been happening to all of us, I have been reflecting on this passage from Ephesians a lot along with a couple others like it, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, the places where Paul talks about the body of Christ. They are key parts of the dissertation that I worked on on the church. And in my studies around those passages and this idea of the body of Christ, um, one of the things that I did is I explored how John Calvin, a Reformation pastor from the 1500s, understood that idea about the body of Christ. And I don't know how much you know about John Calvin or the Reformation, but you might assume from what you do know that he was more concerned about the church being right about certain things than he was about the church being united. In fact, he actually met with lots of other pastors across Germany and all of Europe, whether they were Lutheran or Reformed and even Catholic. To try and bring the churches to a place of reconciliation, even when they still disagreed about important theological matters. He also preached on unity in his congregation as refugees flooded in from France and all around Europe, because in that time wars began to erupt as people divided over their religious beliefs and political affiliations. Yet he taught his church to welcome people in, set up ways to take care of both the new refugees coming in and others in their community that needed assistance or health care. So I was studying all these things about the Bible and about history and John Calvin, and all the while I was reading that, I was also hearing from my friends who are pastors all over the RCA about the new challenges that they were facing as they figured out how to plan worship and care for their congregations during the COVID-19 outbreaks. Some of them experienced conflict in their churches as they tried to figure out the best ways to do that and the best ways to come back together to be in person when it felt like it was time. Some of them just were left wondering, would anyone even come back once the doors were opened again? And then finally, in the last year or so, as it seemed things were starting to get back to normal, I started to get these emails because I'm still a part of RCA in Zealand classes and I would hear about churches leaving the RCA over this long conflict we've been having over human sexuality and biblical authority. And I saw how from a distance my friends who are pastors were just carrying this strain and this burden and you could see that that was reflected in their congregations. as People struggled to figure out how to walk through all these challenges together. And I don't know what's been happening here. Um, Maybe some of you feel these strains in the church's unity as well. I know that one of the ways I've seen this come out is actually in articles reflecting on the Reformation. There's been numerous articles, either blogs or in Christian magazines, wondering, is the legacy of the Reformation just that the church is meant to divide? It's a question that comes up whether it's an anniversary of the Reformation. We had the 500 years anniversary since I was here. It came up again when news came out of different denominations. The Methodists had a big split over human sexuality. It came up again when the RCA's been having some new discussions about it. Is it true that the legacy of the Reformation, that the church in America today, that that's what we're known for is division? I would really like to point to John Calvin and the ecumenical stories of trying to find unity that I was talking about at the beginning. I'd love to point to all of those kinds of examples and say, no, 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 that can't be true. That can't be the whole legacy of what the Christian church today is about. But to be honest, a part of me sometimes wonders, is division the legacy of the church as we know it today? It makes my heart heavy as I'm studying the doctrine of the because so often what I hear about in the news does not sound anything like what Paul wrote to the letter to the Ephesians, encouraged them to do. He said, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He told the people, speak the truth in love and grow to become a mature body. So I can't help but wonder that if in the midst of all the news and politics or the hearsay that our friends on Facebook told us or our own fears echoing in our ears, if we, the church, and I mean church capital C, not North Holland, not the RCA, the church, if we haven't forgotten that this is what the Bible tells us. There is one body and one spirit. We share one hope. One faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and through all and in all. One God is over all and through all and in all. We are one body, the body of Christ. So here's one thing I've become convinced of in thinking about what the body of Christ is. And I want, want you to hear this from me. Is if you take one thing away from what my dissertation is about, I don't think this body is meant to be a mere metaphor. I don't think Paul is just telling us to act like we're all getting along, to give this appearance of everything is nice and we're just going to cover up any of our conflicts so that we look like one body, one church that's all getting along with each other. He really believes that there is a spiritual reality of a oneness, between all of us, that we can't erase, that it's not just an imaginary connection that we have with each other. It's not just a decision we made to be friends with each other because we agree on the same thing. He believes it's a spiritual reality, and then he calls us to make it a reality in our lives. What do I mean by that? When we receive the Spirit in faith, we declare in baptism that we share in Christ's death and resurrection This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 6 when he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is how our salvation actually gets into motion. It's not just we believe a thing and that checks a box somewhere on a list. The Spirit comes and acts in us. That's what we say we believe when we baptize. The Spirit comes and unites us to Christ, and it makes everything that he deserves, of who he is and what he's done, it makes it come to us as our inheritance. His eternal life becomes ours because the Spirit unites us to him. It's like that metaphor of the vine and the branches, right? We've been engrafted into this vine, and that vine is Jesus. We're connected to him by the Spirit. And somehow it seems like most of the time, in American Christianity, when we talk about salvation, we imagine it as something very individual. Like, I'm connected to Jesus, and I pray and have my time reading the Bible so that I grow in my faith, and we, we imagine this very individualistically. At least I always did. But this idea of the body of Christ reminds us that we are not the only ones who are united to Christ. We are surrounded by brothers and sisters, a body that's made up of many parts. It's not just Jesus the head with like one foot or one hand sticking out of it, me and Jesus. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? But instead, when we are united to Christ, we are united to his body at the, at the same time. John Calvin, like Paul, often used this term of engrafting to talk about our relationship to Christ. We have been engrafted into Christ when we're saved, like a branch being grafted into an apple tree. That branch adds to the fruitfulness of the whole tree, doesn't it? it? Can you imagine a tree with only one branch? You would assume it was dying if it only had one branch. It needs all of these branches to be a living thing. And if we're one branch grafted in, we're a part of this whole tree now. In fact, Calvin even goes on to say this. No hope of future inheritance remains to us unless we have been united to all other members under Christ our head. No hope of future inheritance, no hope of eternal life in the kingdom of God, he means, exists for us unless we are united to other members of the body of Christ. That means no salvation without being part of the church. That's what he's saying. That's a bold statement. It makes me think back to one of the very first years I was here at North Holland actually. There was a conversation in a profession of faith class that was down over there. It wasn't in the chapel that I don't know, it was somewhere downstairs. I forget. It was one of the first years, and it was the high school students were in this class, and I remember one of them, I don't remember who, asked me this question that I've never forgotten because I didn't know how to answer it in the moment. They said, so to be a Christian, does a person have to go to church? To be saved, do I have to go to church every week? And it was an important question for those students to be asking. They were about to make profession of faith. They were going to stand up here and make a commitment before all of you about what it means to be a Christian and to claim their faith as their own. And they wanted to know what were they committing to. They were taking it seriously. They wanted to know is it necessary to go to church to be a Christian. And maybe a lot of us wonder the same thing these days after getting used to worshiping at home in front of a video screen. Do I really have to go? And I don't know, I don't honestly remember what I said to the students that day. But I want to give you my answer today. But it's not as simple as just yes or no. Because we have to remind ourselves about our definition of the church. The question, do I have to go to church? supposes that the church is a place or a particular event or activity that's taking place, right? It's not that he's talking about are we talking about do I have to go to worship or we do I have to go to a certain number of bible studies or something to become a christian? But rather the church as Paul is talking about here is not a certain place that you have to go or a certain event you have to attend. It's an identity It's a membership in the body of Christ. It is a those-who-are-united-to-Christ community. It links us to one another and to Jesus. And being a part of that spiritual community is not optional for Christians. You don't get to, like, be a Christian and choose to not be a part of that. If you... Accept Jesus and love Jesus and are connected with him by the Spirit, you are also connected to all these other people and all the other Christians all around the world, like it or not. This body, this spiritual community of those who are united to Christ is united by definition. You can't have body parts scattered all over the place. It doesn't work. This body is made up of believers from every time and place. So when you are united to Christ, you are united to all others who know Jesus in Kenya or Brazil or the Philippines, all around the world. Whether they're Catholic or Pentecostal or rich or poor or black or white, the Spirit unites us all to Christ. And to be clear, just because I am talking about this as a spiritual community, a spiritual reality, does not mean it's only imaginary or that it's only going to happen someday when we get to heaven. Because Paul is making that really clear here in Ephesians, isn't he? He's urging them to make it a reality now. This body is something we're called to live into today by being humble and gentle with one another, by practicing love, by sharing the gifts and graces that we've been given from God with one another here and now. So on the one hand, I am saying that if you believe in Jesus, you don't get a choice. You are a part of the church, the body of Christ, period. But the question becomes, how is that spiritual reality going to impact us here and now? What does it have to do with this building we imagine in our head when someone says, where do you go to church? Or what does it have to do with the people that make it up? What does it have to do with leaders and programs and friends here and the people who sit on the other side of the room that I don't really like, or even the people at the church down the road who I really disagree with. The local church, this congregation, all of you together, are our place to begin, to start to live out this reality of unity of the body of Christ as best we can. It's our place to practice, to practice becoming gentle and humble and hopeful people that can participate well in the body that is envisioned here, which is a very different kind of a body, isn't it? It's a loud, colorful, all-encompassing body that incorporates people of all kinds of abilities, all kinds of backgrounds. It's really hard to imagine how we would have like, a church structure that honestly incorporated all of those people from all these different places and all their different languages. But this is our place to practice living that out by graciously listening to one another, receiving from one another what we have to share. So to answer that question from that profession of faith class, I am not telling you you have to come to worship every single week or to be involved in a certain number or types of programs or Bible studies or any certain things like that. But I do think that as Christians, we are required to keep learning to love and live with our neighbors to gather with them around a table, to receive their gifts as grace from God to us, to listen well to their understanding of the world. And when we do this, we are being the church, the body of Christ. Let's listen again to how Paul describes that church. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ, by his Spirit, gave different gifts and different roles to all kinds of people in his body. And when he gives lists like this, this one he gives sort of like offices, pastor and prophet and apostle. In other places, Paul lists different types of gifts, being gracious, merciful, giving, all these kinds of things. He never makes them complete, and they're all a little different. He's trying to just get you thinking of all the ideas. There's all different roles we have to play, all different gifts. We've each been given one, he says. According to grace, every person receives some of these gifts, and they are made so that whether we are teachers or elders or quilt makers or musicians, we all have something to contribute so that the body can be built up into the wholeness until it starts to look like Jesus. We're called to begin to look like Jesus together. Together, we're called to become mature, growing in knowledge and also in unity in the faith. I'm going to keep quoting John Calvin because that's kind of my prerogative today. (laughs) He says that the body was made with all these different gifts on purpose so that we would remember we need each other because none of us have what we need to attain being like Jesus. To paraphrase, we have to learn it from one another. None of us is complete enough in ourselves to be what we're supposed to be to be like Jesus. We need one another to be able to do that. That's what this passage is telling us. So Paul says, when we start to grow into that maturity, this is what will happen. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Jesus gave us each unique graces and different gifts so that we could share with one another. We are meant to be linked together in in life-giving ways just the same way that our bodies have ligaments and tendons and veins and arteries that help our body grow and stay whole and keep all of those parts in sync. We don't each grow into the image of Christ here, but together we become his body, growing up to fit into that head that we've been giving. It's almost like Right now, we're still like awkward preteens that our feet are too big for us and kind of awkward and fumbling around, not sure what to do. But the goal is that as a body, we would become confident, clear, gracious, loving people who look like Jesus together. We're meant to share all of the graces that we've been given and also to receive it from other people. In order to grow that way, the flow in the body cannot just go one way. It has to circulate. We have to give our grace and gifts that we've been given and receive them from other people. And that means receiving their perspective and their experiences and their strengths and their knowledge just as we share our own. This body will not reach maturity until each and every person is able to give and receive that grace to each other. And that means giving and receiving aspects of all of who they are, their gifts, but also their backgrounds. Maybe they have a perspective because they're a woman or because they're a man or because they're rich or because they're poor. Every background and ability, all people need to be encouraged and empowered to use their gifts to give and receive grace from each other. And when we're able to do that, then the church will no longer be tossed back and forth in the waves, Paul says. We will no longer be manipulated by popular trends and political techniques that are used to make us take sides or buy the latest gadgets or any of that kind of stuff. We will become a community that is the image of Christ in the world, showing who he is in fullness to the world. Last thing I want to image I want to bring up for you. Letty Russell, a Presbyterian feminist theologian, suggests that another way to think about the church is as though it was the family gathered around a big kitchen table. The kitchen table as this place where we come to talk together about the things affecting our lives and make decisions about our life together as a family. It's the place where we come to care for each other to be sustained through our relationships and through food and all the things that we need. It's this big round kitchen table, but, but big enough to encompass the whole world. And in fact, I want to say that this table, the communion table is precisely the kind of place to practice being that big table. This table is the one where Jesus invites us all to come and get a glimpse of all that he intends for us as the body of Christ when the kingdom of God is fully come. We come to this table as a reminder and a renewal of our union with Christ, that by the Spirit we share in all that Christ has done for us. But we don't come to this table like it's a tiny two-seater bistro table that's just going to be with me and Jesus having a little meal together, we come to this table like it's that big, expansive table, like it's a banquet that Jesus has set for all of his people to gather around together. We only get a foretaste of it here when we have a morsel of bread and we look around this room. But it is a foretaste. It is an anticipation of the great banquet feast of the supper that Jesus is going to hold in the kingdom. So today, as we come together at this Lord's Supper, I urge you to consider you already are loving one another so well and the ways you can continue to grow in that ability to lovingly, graciously welcome. I urge you to consider not only those in the pew next to you, but those in the church that have been hard for you to love, whether they're in this room or they're just some idea of a person in your mind, let this meal be your pledge to show that gracious unity to the world as together we grow towards maturity in Christ. Let this be the place we begin and we practice becoming that full maturity of Christ together. Will you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we are called not only as individuals to love you and to um, imitate you, but we also thank you that you have put around us this church that gives us. God, we ask that you would continue that now as we approach the table of communion together. Amen.